This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And I'm just going to continue our series called Revive. So we're going to stay at this a little bit longer. I've had a few people encourage me, let's don't quite wrap it up, let's keep going. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. So we're speaking about biblical passages that deal with revival. The passage we're going to look at today is very clearly a passage on renewal for God's people. And when we talk about revival, we're not talking about protracted meetings. Uh, We're not talking about a rah-rah to get everybody pumped up emotionally about Jesus and the church for a little while. Uh, We're not talking about uh, just an increase in church growth, an increase in spiritual gifts, an increase in personal evangelism, though any of those could be a part of renewal. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is God visiting his people in a refreshing way. God, by his spirit, among his people in a renewing way, but doing that in an intensified way. I love Tim Keller's definition of revival. He says it's an intensifying of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's nothing ordinary that the Holy Spirit does, but you understand what he's saying. Things like conviction of sin, regeneration, growth in holiness, assurance of salvation, these kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does. Those are regular works of the Spirit, but they're intensified in seasons biblically of revival or historically as well. They're through ordinary means, the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of God's word, the reading and study of God's word, prayer, the sacraments, fellowship, the normal stuff that we experience. And yet God comes in a unusual way to intensify and to accelerate his work in someone's heart or in a church. And so that's what we're really praying for. It's, it's, here's how I like to think about renewal or revival in many ways. I think it's an awakening. It's when a sleepy Christian wakes up. Uh, that, that is what it really is. It's the people of God becoming conscious of who God really is. Because so much of the time we walk around in some stupor, just unaware of who he is and what he's like and what he's done. And when God comes to renew and revive, the lights go on, our eyes are opened up, and we're aware of who he is and what he's done. And so that's what we're, that's what we're praying for. The last two weeks, Rob preached uh, on... Uh, really a primary means to bringing renewal, which is the word of God. So we talked about studying, meditating, applying the scripture. Today and next week, I was going to do this all in one message. I'm really glad I didn't. Yesterday I decided to make this a two-part deal. And um, so uh, I'm going to speak two weeks uh, on repentance. Because this is a hallmark, biblically, and anything I've read about historical renewals, there was always as a primary hallmark repentance among the people of God, as well as those who are becoming Christians. So I want to talk about repentance. Repentance is a two-way turning. So this is really important for the passage we're going to look at today. Repentance is a turning towards God, but it's a turning away from something too. It's turning, it's like if we're walking this way and we're heading in sin, I'm clutching onto idols, false gods, false substitutes for God, and we turn the other way. We turn away from sin and we turn 
towards God. And it's not just getting a list of things to do and just sort of cleaning ourselves up on the outside. It's not, let me just start cleaning myself up so that God will approve of me. Absolutely not. It's not just, let me clean up myself so I'll fit in with the Christian culture that I'm a part of and I won't stand out. No, it's not that. It's God working in our hearts and showing us who he is from the scripture so that we're gripped with a vision of God and that impresses upon us our need for God. And it also, when the lights go on, it, it, it impresses upon us the things that we're hanging on to that are false gods, the things that we clutch, the things that we cherish, the things that we hold on to, like the, the opinion of others or money or um, any kind of lust or, or greed or, or anything's pride, anything's like this. Um, and it shows us, it's a, it's a letting go of that and turning back to God with a genuine brokenness, with a sorrow, with an awareness that, that, this, is, that this is the very sin that Jesus died for. An attorney. So it's an internal work. It's a work of the Spirit. We can't make it happen. Now, we can position ourselves, I believe, for the Spirit to work in us. But it's a work of the Spirit where the lights go on. And that's why we pray for renewal and revival, because we are dependent upon him to help us. So here's what we're going to do in the next two weeks. I'm going to cover 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11 today. Next week, I'm going to cover 1 Samuel 7, though I'm going to read 1 Samuel 7 today. And what happens in, this pa- in these two passages is we encounter the people of God experiencing a surface-level repentance followed by a genuine repentance. We have an, a, a fake repentance and then a real repentance. Uh, we have a superficial repentance and then a supernatural repentance that happens in chapter 7. So today, I want to look at this superficial repentance among God's people. I want to look at the results of it, and then next week we'll look at supernatural repentance, real repentance, but we'll kind of, uh, we'll get over there a little bit today as well. So I'm reading 1 Samuel 4, verse 1 from the ESV. This is God's word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage 
and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your working among your people historically, and we pray that today you would reveal yourself to us in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would break through our familiarity with you. I pray that you would break through our tendency, sometimes to even coast uh, in, in sermon mode. I pray that you would be active and working deep in our souls, that you would be affecting change. And Lord, I pray that you would guard us from what we're going to read about today, what we have read about, a, a, a synthetic, a false sort of repentance, and I pray that you would show us, Lord, how to respond to you. Show us what you've done for us. Show us your mercy, your love, your grace, your fatherly care, and I pray that we would run from the idols of the age and run to you today. Help us, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the chapter opens up with a battle. It's the Philistines who are like the chief enemy of Israel. And the Philistines and Israel, they're, they're opposed to one another. And what we read is that the Philistines win and a thousand of the Israelites are killed. So some of the guys from the army run back to the camp and they tell the elders of Israel what has happened. And we pick this up in verse 3. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, so the elders asked this question, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Now, this is a good question, and they're asking a question that reveals uh, that they're somewhat insightful, the, the elders of Israel, because they know that God rules and that God reigns, and that if the Philistines have beat them, their conclusion is not that we just needed uh, a few guys with a more accurate shot. That's not their conclusion. Their conclusion is God has opposed us, that God has defeated us today. So they understand God's rule and reign. And so they begin to wonder, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God cause us to be, de- be defeated? To use their words, why would God defeat us like this? We're the people of God. Why is God resisting us? And so it's a very good question. It's a very good, uh, it, it shows a, 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 the appropriate impulse. But their solution is misguided. Because here's what they think is missing, and here's what they decide to do. They say, I'm still in verse three, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I mean, look at the language that it may save us from the power of our enemies. So they think if we could just get the ark here, that's what we're missing. That's why we're losing. The Ark of the Covenant's not with us on the battlefield. If it was with us, it would deliver us. It would defeat the enemy. All we need is the Ark. Now, this almost sounds superstitious, doesn't it? Because it is superstitious. This is a superstitious approach. They assume that if they have the Ark, they will win. And this ideology is false there. This ideology was false in the making of the movie Indiana Jones. When Indiana Jones' sidekick... 
Marcus Brody said the exact same thing. He said, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. He never read 1 Samuel chapter 4. Whoever was looking over the script for Indiana Jones didn't read here because Israel got the ark and they weren't invincible. It went worse for them, far worse. They lost nearly eight times as many guys with the ark on the field of battle than they did when it wasn't there. So their conclusion is not good. They just think, why did we lose 4,000 men? Why did 4,000 men have to die? And what's the answer? Someone go fetch the ark. Bring me the ark is what they say. Now, what is the ark of the covenant? Well, the ark of the covenant was something God prescribed for his people's worship. It was a box. It was slightly less than four feet long, about three feet, three quarter, three and three quarters feet, I believe, uh, long. And it was like uh, two under three feet, two and a half to three feet uh, this way and this way. So it was, it was this rectangular box and in it was placed the Ten Commandments. And later was added uh, some manna from the days in the wilderness and also uh, Aaron's staff, I believe, was as well put in there. It was overlaid with gold and on top of it were two cherubim, which are, which are mentioned here in the passage. They were two winged creatures whose wings stretched out and the points of their wings touched over the, uh, over the box. And the box was housed behind a thick curtain. The holy place was housed behind a curtain in the tabernacle and later the temple. And it represented several things. It represented God's presence in terms of his presence to rule. The Bible called, later calls the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool. It's where he rests his feet, it's figuratively speaking. It's where he ruled his presence is between the cherubim, the passage says. Uh, it also represented God's revelation because in there is the Ten Commandments. God's speaking his word to his people. And, and perhaps most importantly, it represented God's forgiveness or God's reconciliation because annually... The, uh, the priest would go on the Day of Atonement behind the curtain and would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, which came from a sacrifice which was made for the forgiveness of people's sins, which was made to represent people's sins for the forgiveness of their sins. So it's probably kind of a bloody, but dried blood on this box. And uh, so they think that if they get it there, they will be okay. Now, there's something that's right about the response of the people. We're going to find out in a few minutes when we read chapter 7 that the people were worshiping, Baals and the Ashtaroth. They were worshiping other gods. So here, they don't turn to Baal. They do turn to God of sorts, don't they? I mean, it is a repentance of sorts if repentance is turning to God. They at least are turning to God and they want uh, his, his Ark of the Covenant there. Now, it's a superficial repentance, but it's a little bit of a turning to God thinking that the ark will somehow save them, but the ark is tied to God. So it's at least tied to the right God, uh, if nothing else. There could be the sense that he has to give us victory. If God's ark is present, which represents him and his word and his forgiveness, certainly God would defend us. Certainly God's not going to let his name go down, uh, and we're going to be defeated by the Philistines. And it's probably another reason that they probably bring it is because, pragmatically, it worked before. 
There's times in Israel's history when God prescribed the Ark of the Covenant be brought to battle. Like, for instance, when Israel defeated Jericho. They, they had the Ark out front. They walked around Jericho. Uh, they then blew the ram's horns, and the, the walls fell down of Jericho, and the Ark is present. So the Lord at one time did tell the people to bring the ark into battle. He didn't do that at other times. He didn't do that here. Uh, and so they think, well, this is, it worked before. What's missing? We're losing what's missing. Oh, yeah, the ark. And it's interesting. When the ark shows up, you even see a, a similar response. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. Hey, this is Jericho again. It's here. Let's all give a mighty shout. And maybe the Philistines will come tumbling down, you know, like the walls of Jericho. It's probably celebration, but it may also be a shout like what we did before. The ark is present. There's a shout. The ground, uh, the ground trembles under them. So they, they, they bring the ark. They think that's what's missing. Well, look what's really missing through their assessment, the elders, that is. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Let us bring the ark of the covenant. There's nothing about prayer here. They don't consult. They are in a few chapters later. They don't consult the Lord in prayer. They don't, no one raises the issue that maybe some of this is happening so that God can get our attention because we have left him to worship other gods. Perhaps that's at play here. No one asks about uh, the people of God and their devotion, their heart for the Lord. No one asks about the word of God. They've got Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. No one evidently says, Samuel, what's the word of the Lord? You see this at various parts of the Old Testament. What does God say to us? You're a prophet. You hear God. We don't have people like that now that hear the very word of God and can bring it to the people, but they did then before it was recorded, before the scripture was recorded. So they could have said, hey, Samuel, tell us the word of the Lord. Or like they do in chapter 7, Samuel, please pray for us and bring some kind of direction. But there is none of that. There's none of that. There's just get the ark, get the box. Let the box come and do its thing. Let the God box come and win for us. As one guy called it, let the God machine come and win the battle for us. There's no sense of looking anywhere else. It is a turning to God, sort of, but it is a surface turning to God. It is people finding themselves in dire need and then pursuing a religious solution, a religious practice, a religious act. It's not a deep pursuit of God. It's not a genuine pursuit of God. As a matter of fact, there's no evidence that there's any real pursuit of God. There's just the pursuit of God's things, God's power, God's deliverance, but not God. So they bring the ark from Shiloh, and there's this comment, which we just read chapter 4, it can seem seemingly insignificant. If you read the first three chapters, particular chapter 2, particularly chapter 2, you'll see it's a very significant comment. And that is found in verse 4, second part of verse 4. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, this is a clue to what the problem is and why God is resisting his people. These two guys work at the tent. They serve in the worship of God. They, their dad, Eli, is the, the priest here over Israel, and they serve in the ministry of 
the worship of God. And look back in chapter 2, what we find out about these guys. Chapter 2, verse 12. And now the sons of Eli, that's Hophni and Phinehas. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Well, this might be an issue. If the very men of God who are to be instructing the people of God and leading in the worship of God don't even know God, that might be a problem. That might be a greater problem than we don't have the ark on the battlefield. We have leaders that don't know God. Look up, the next passage talks about how people would come to give an offering and they would basically manhandle people and get their offering, get the food that was being offered and eat it themselves. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So not only were they scoundrels, Not only did they not know the Lord, but their father heard about it and didn't do anything about it. He's the leading guy, priest in worship, and he doesn't do anything about it. Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Entrance to the tent of meeting is a holy place. This is where you come and meet God. And so these men who are facilitating worship have ladies that serve in the worship of God and they're sleeping with them. They're committing fornication, adultery. That, that's, that's what the people of God are like. That's what the leaders of the people of God are like. Verse 23, and he said to them, Eli to the boys, his sons, not boys, they're men. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. The peop, uh, from all the people know my sons, it is not a good, there's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And so we have a, the man leading who is not bringing any righteousness to the process. We have the sons who are facilitating the ministry of worship are immoral men that don't even know God. And we've got the people on the battlefield thinking our greatest problem is that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant out here in the battle. That's why we're losing. We're also going to find out in chapter 7, as I mentioned, that the people worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So they're worshiping fertility gods. Worshiping fertility gods, the god, the fertility gods of the people that surrounded them had prostitutes at their temples. It was a completely immoral approach to, to worship. So the people of God are distant from God. Their primary issue is not a lack of the Ark of the Covenant. Their primary issue is lives and hearts that aren't near their God. They're in deep sin, the leaders of Israel. Bringing the ark won't address that problem. It's a movement towards God of sorts. It's a religious act of sorts, but it doesn't address the greater need, which is their, their relationship with their God. Well, here's what happens. The ark comes in, everybody shouts. The Philistines are scared to death. They are saying, wow, gods have come into their camp. This is like what happened, they say, in Egypt, where God delivered this people from Egypt. Man, they've got gods on their side. What are we going to do? So you would think that they would melt in fear. They just sort of man up. They just say, well, if that's the case, be men, be courageous, they say, verse 9. The Philistines say, take courage and be men, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. We don't want them to rule over us. Yes, they have gods in their camp, 
but let's stand up and let's fight. And so they go to battle and verse 16 says, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for their fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. And, oh, this is grievous. The ark of God was captured. Pagans have the ark of God. The next two chapters talk about what happens to the ark. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What happens in the rest of the chapter is some people from the battle go back and tell Eli what happens. And they tell him, your sons were killed in battle. And they tell him that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant is captured, it, he falls over. The Bible tells us he was a heavy man and he was an old man. So based on brittle bones and obesity, his neck snaps. His, he falls over in shock. His neck breaks and he dies. Then one of the boys, I think Phineas, his, his daughter, uh, I'm sorry, Phineas's wife uh, has a, which is Eli's uh, daughter-in-law, she has a baby and they name it Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. And that's the period on the chapter. The glory has departed from Israel. Actually, the glory had departed before this, this battle. The glory had probably departed some time before, but this is when the people realized that the glory of God has departed from the people of God because the people of God are far from God. It is a tragic story. It, it, it is a tragic story, um, and, it, and it endures. Because if we go to chapter 7, which we'll look at in some detail next week, if we go to chapter 7, we find out that they stay far from God for the next 20 years. Look at verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So uh, it, it, this, that didn't happen too long after they captured it from battle. But then it says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, I want you to compare the response here to chapter 4. First of all, we don't hear anything about anyone lamenting. We hear, get the ark. Get the ark. No one's lamenting. No one's saying, why are Hophni and Phinehas bringing it? Why are they even near the ark of the covenant? Why, why, wh- they don't even know the Lord. No one's saying that. No one's lamenting. Verse 3, Samuel said to the house of the Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, none of that previously, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Turn away from your idols and turn to him alone and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Oh, that's the answer. It's not that we lack the ark. It's that we lack a heart for God. That was the problem. 20 years later, they get it. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And then we'll finish the story next week. Very different. 
Lord, something's wrong. We've been resisted. They don't begin to look at the character of God and draw conclusions about themselves. They instead just seek to get the ark. Chapter 4 tells us something about God, and it tells us something about how we are to respond to God, how we are to relate with God, how we are to turn to God, especially in times of trouble. Here's a few things that I think surface from chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Number one, God is to be worshipped and not used. God is to be worshipped and not used. He is, after all, God. He, He is the one who spoke and everything that exists came into being from the speaking of his word. He is the one that rules over everything in perfect righteousness and holiness. He is the one that controls things as small as a molecule and as great as a solar system. He is all-powerful, governing the very small things in existence and the very great things in existence. He is the God who is completely worthy of our lives, for he has not only created not only rules and reigns, but has given himself in Jesus for us. He is a God that has redeemed us and reconciled us. And for Israel, he gave himself to them as well. He gave himself to them. He wasn't to be used, but worshiped. What did he do? He chose Israel as his own people, as a father to the nation. And he provided for them. He made them a people. He brought them out of slavery. They were enslaved in Egypt, and he brought them out. He defeated those who held them captive, and not only defeated them, but if you read, when they left uh, Egypt in the Exodus, it's amazing. People are like giving them gold and silver. They're just, get out of here. Let me give you all of my worldly possessions. They ransacked the Egyptians by just catching what was giving them, basically. He brought them to the Red Sea, and when they looked trapped and desperate, they looked to him, and he made a way through the Red Sea, destroying their enemies. He brought them into a land and provided for them. The Scripture says, vineyards that you did not plant, houses that you did not build. It's a glorious demonstration and testimony of grace. He provided everything for them. He chose them. He took initiative to reveal himself to Abram. He made a nation of them. He blessed them richly. And as the God of grace who brought them out of Egypt, he says to them and says to us in the Ten Commandments, when he brought them out, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. In response to his lavish provision, in response to his very particular love and care, he says, I am to be your God alone. He's a very jealous God, the scripture says, not with sinful jealousy, but with a a claim upon his people, for he has provided everything for them. That's what he asks. And it's not the kind of command, you shall have no other gods but me. It's not the kind of command that says, I want to ruin your life. I want to ensure you have a miserable existence. It's not that kind of command. It's the command of a parent that says to a toddler, do not run into the street for you will die. It's a God who's calling people to himself because he has given himself to him, to them and he is glorious. 
He is wonderful. He warns them. He commands them. He requires that they not trade the glory of God for cheap imitations which kill, which destroy. He loves them. He's glorious and he's deserving of their their sole allegiance and commitment not to other gods but to him. And yet Israel here, they're not worshiping the Lord. They're using him. We're in trouble, God. Let's bring the box of God, and that'll require God to deliver us. We don't require God to do anything. I remember years ago, I was a teenager. I was somewhere, I don't even remember what this deal was. I was somewhere, and they had a book table, and I saw a book, and it was entitled, I don't even know what it's about. I haven't read it, but the title is horrendous. The title of the book was How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. In other words, how to manipulate the deity to get what you want. At least that's what the title says to me. I didn't read the book. Nobody writes their ticket with God. We don't tell God, we don't prescribe to the God of the universe, this is what you must do for me. Let me write you into my story. No, we're written into his. And so here they're saying, God, we're going to bring the box and you will bless us. You will defend us. We're going to live like the world. We're going to be indistinct from the world. We've got priests and leaders that don't even know who you are and live like the nations, but you must deliver us on this basis. We've got your box. That is using God. That is not loving God. There's no notion of love, gratitude, service, worship. Oh, there is in chapter seven, but there's not in chapter four. You don't get that. They are taking God for granted. They are despising his mercy and grace. They're treating him with contempt, just as the Elah... Hophni and Phineas did with the offering. They treated it with contempt. And that's what's happening in this passage. Young people, young people, beware the temptation to use God rather than to serve God or to love God. Beware the temptation to use him. <clears throat> Adults know something about that too. But let me, my observation is that a lot of kids that grow up in church know about God, are familiar with God, know enough about God to know he answers prayer, know enough about God to know he's a father to his children, know enough about God to to know that he's a God who rescues, and, and then only turn to him in times of great need, like here, when their life's up against the wall. I know something about that as a younger teen. I can remember that that I just responded to God oftentimes when I had a real need. So This is how it works for you. You find out the teacher is going to call your parents and tell your parents something you did or failed to do that you were supposed to do at school. Or another parent is going to call your parents and tell your parents something about you that they know, and all of a sudden you've got a prayer life. All of a sudden, there's, you hadn't prayed, but all of a sudden God is really big, and I need God not living for God, really. I'm aware of God, but now I'm really aware of God because I have a need. I'm really aware of God. And we come to him in those moments. Uh, God answers prayer. God is merciful, but we come and in reality, if we look at our life over the months and years before, we'd say we're using God. We're not loving God. We're not serving God. You have some, or like this, you have some hidden sin in your life exposed. Young people, your parents find out about some aspect. You sort of have a double life thing going on. There's something that you're doing that they don't know about, and it comes to the light. Somehow they find something, or, or they hear something, 
like Eli with his sons, they find something out and you're exposed. And for a moment, there is a real sense of, I need God. You've been caught. And there is a sorrow, but it's not the kind of sorrow in 1 Samuel 7. It's the kind of sorrow that really you're sorry for what you're having to walk through. And there's some awareness of God. There's some sense that I've sinned. But as soon as the scenario blows over and your parents go back to kind of normal, as soon as that happens, you go back to the way you were as well. Why? Because it was a surface repentance. It wasn't a real repentance. It was just sort of the bad situation caused you to respond to God for a little bit, but it did not last. It's not a serving God. It's not a loving God. It's not a following God. It's not a gratitude for God. It's using God. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card that I play when I'm busted or when I really need something or when something really bad happens. Someone I love may die or my friends rejected me or something happens bad, which is heavy and serious, absolutely. But those are the only times that we genuinely go. And what happens in those situations is you are missing all that God has. They're miss- this is tragic for so many reasons. One reason this chapter is tragic is it didn't have to be this way. They didn't have to have 20 years of their existence trashed. They, they, they were missing out on life. They were missing out on their purpose. They were missing out on why they were created. They were created to be the people of God, and they're missing it while they hang on to cheap imitations like the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So if you're a young person or any of us, let's not use God when we are desperate and then forget about him. Let's ask him to turn our hearts to him, like we read in chapter 7 couple other ideas and we're done. One is God is to be worshiped and not used. The second is real repentance is turning away from sin. We're going to look carefully at this next week, but there's no turning from sin in chapter four. Let's get the ark. That's a positive step of sorts towards God, but no turning from sin. So you can be moved and not changed. They're moved, but they're moved by circumstances that are bad. They're not changed. So we'll look at this next week. But basically, it's turning away from something and turning to God. It's letting go of the God substitute and finding comfort in God. It's, it's where do we go for joy? Where do we go for comfort? Where do we go for meaning? Where do we go for purpose in life? Where do we go to, be success, to view ourselves as successful? If those things are substitutes for God, it's letting that go. It's, it's cutting all our plan B's. And all our other options, it's taking all the options out of our pockets and saying, I have nothing, Lord, but you, and you're more than enough. That, that's what real repentance is. Lastly, real repentance is turning to God and not merely the things of God. Now hear me on this. It's turning to God personally and not just the things of God. It's turning to God and not just religious practice. It's turning to God and not to religion. What they do in chapter 4, and we find out in chapter 7, they change. But in chapter 4, rather than replacing idols with God, they keep idols and add religious practice. So let's keep living like hellions. Let's keep living as if God doesn't exist. Let's keep living all about us and what we want to do and following other gods. But let's go ahead and get the ark over here. Let's add something religious, something good. The ark of good, holy. The ark of the covenant is God-prescribed. The Ark of the Covenant is glorious because it's, it represents the presence and the activity of God. So they actually, they actually use 
something of God as a substitute for really coming to God. See, a hallmark of real renewal and real revival, as I've read about it or as I see in this passage, a hallmark of it is that it's, it's not just religious practice, but it's a, it's a heart that's awakened. It's a mind that's alert to the person and work of God. It's affections that are generally stirred, emotions really stirred for God that are genuine. It's not turning to a technique or a practice or a routine or a ritual of some sort. For them, it was just turning to the Ark of the Covenant. See, here, this is how it can work. Maybe you're eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness. You're just hanging on. It's like a comfort. It's like a comfortable place you go when you think about someone else and what they did or didn't do for you. And there's just this bitter unforgiveness when you go there mentally. And so rather than deal with that and take that to God, it's easier just to hang on to that and add like a regular devotional life, which could be used by God to free you. But, but it's not just adding a religious practice and holding on to the sin. You see, it's coming and bringing that to God and saying, God, please forgive me. Please help me. Please grant me some deliverance from this sin. Please, I want to be changed. I don't want to hang on to this pet sin. I want to be changed by you. And I'm not just going to add a religious practice and, and assume that by doing that, I am okay. Doing something external while my heart remains unchanged. That's what happens. They do something religious, but their heart is unchanged. So instead of addressing the, at a heart, at our being, instead of addressing our overspending and our overeating and our overdrinking, we just think, well, I'll just get better church attendance. Or I'll go to a small group. Or I'll do some religious practice. Church attendance and small groups, wonderful. As a means to connect with God, but not as a substitute for dealing with the real issues of our heart. We don't have to pick one or the other, by the way. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's bringing our heart to the Lord. It's not a technique. It's saying, Lord, why is it that I go there for comfort instead of you? Why is it that when... when, when when I feel empty, I, I believe the lie that the accumulation of some more things will make me feel not empty. Why is it when I feel depressed that I believe the lie that if I eat more, I'll be okay? Why is it when I'm anxious and fearful and nervous that I believe the lie that a little more to drink will calm my nerves and I'll be okay? Why am I doing that? That's the real issue that they miss and never encounter God. They just add a religious practice. And so they find a substitute, something that's good. Something that's good can actually substitute for God. The Ark of the Covenant, religious practice. There's no magic wand for life change. We can't assume, well, it worked before, it'll work again. Here's a technique. It worked in Jericho. Here's something that worked in my life in the past. I don't really have to deal with the issues. I'll just do some of that same stuff again externally. Then we have to bring our heart to the Lord and ask him to change us, realizing that Jesus died and rose to free us from sin, to break the power of sin. The Spirit of God resides in us to give us power to overcome sin as we walk in the light before God. We don't have to live in a a cycle of shallow repentance, 
I don't believe we have to live in a cycle of shallow repentance where it's just one religious movement after another and no life change. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus rose from the dead and defeated the power of the enemy. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you today. Jesus has given you his Holy Spirit dwelling in you so that we can really repent and experience genuine breakthrough and change in our lives. He desires for us to have freedom. But if we do what the Israelites did in chapter 4 and don't really come to him for life change and just add religious practice, we'll never, never experience what he has died to win for us. So let's turn to him this morning, asking him to do a deep work. We can't do this. We can't just make it happen. We can't just make it happen. There's no technique. There's no quick way. It's Lord. I'm giving you my heart. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.